So begin by generating your motivation. Within the Buddhist worldview, we have been cycling throughout samsara since beginning last time, taking rebirth after rebirth under the control of afflictions and polluted karma. And yet, personally speaking, the appearances of this life are so strong that my view can be very narrow very much focused on just this life alone. And in the lack of a very broad view that takes into account multiple lifetimes, I find it's easy to get into the laziness of discouragement that starts to doubt the impact of small actions of virtue and refraining from even small negativities. But just getting a little bit overwhelmed by the vastness of the vision of Buddhahood that is in such contrast to my narrow view. And so recently I came across uh, some encouragement from uh, Sheng'an Zhijiang, sorry about pronunciation, but a meditation master and Pure Land Patriarch who wrote this text called Exhortation to Resolve on Buddhahood. And it uplifted and inspired my mind, so I thought to share it. And he counsels, do not, fearing difficulty, shrink back in timidity. Do not, regarding this matter as easy, take it but lightly. Do not, seeking a swift conclusion, fail to make long enduring commitment. Do not, through indolence, remain bereft of heroic bravery. Do not, on account of being shiftless and spiritless, fail to incite yourself to bold action. Do not, drifting along in customary fashion, Continue to put it off for another time. Do not, judging yourself to be foolish and dull-witted, continue depriving yourself of your resolve. Do not, possessing only shallow roots of virtue, judge yourself to be an inferior person with no share in this. Do not claim that a single thought is insignificant. Do not hold the opinion that empty vows are devoid of any benefit. If your mind abides in truth, then your endeavors will be genuine. If your vows are vast in their scope, then your practice will be profound. As for what we have vowed to achieve, it is for all of us together to gain rebirth in the Pure Land, for us all together to see Amitabha Buddha, for all of us together to engage in in teaching of beings, and for all of us together to perfect the right awakening. And so while the goal of Buddhahood and the development of spontaneous bodhicitta may not be easy, it is the most worthwhile thing that we can do. We must be persistent and patient. 
practicing with enthusiasm and fortitude and not allowing our mind to descend into discouragement or despondency. So now that we've found ourselves here with not just one but many qualified spiritual mentors, correct teachings, supportive Dharma friends, then I've got a very rare and precious chance to create the causes that will that will take us to the end goal of full awakening, where we accomplish not only uh, we accomplish the happiness of others, and by way of that, we accomplish the happiness of ourselves. So with a joyful mind and this opportunity we have, we will share the teachings tonight. So the review. Uh, so Venerable Children is still traveling at the moment. Um, so we'll continue with the reviews of previous chapters. And today uh, we'll be looking at fear, anger, and discouragement. Um, three other of the emotions that we can talk about in two different ways in terms of the aspect that we want to cultivate and one aspect that we would want to abandon. Um, so we'll first look at fear. Um, and this is on page, we're reviewing pages 48 to 52 of Approaching the Buddhist Path. Um, so in terms of fear, Venable uh, spent quite a while looking at, t- leading us through looking at the different ways that this can manifest in our lives in an unhelpful way. In terms of there being panic, anxiety, worry, and distress based on an exaggeration um, and self-preoccupation uh, that leads a person to do things or make decisions that are unwise. Um, and in contrast, though, there's a wisdom fear that we can cultivate, where we have an awareness of possible danger, um, and that awareness then causes us to exert effort um, and caution um, to refrain from engaging in particular behaviors or allowing ourselves to think in certain ways. And it's, partic- it's notable that it's free from emotional torment and exaggeration. Um, I think this must have, might have come from the Dhammapada, um, but one of Venerable's teachings, she said that the Buddha said that someone who fears something that they don't need to fear is a fool. But someone who fears what they should fear, someone who doesn't fear what they should fear, is also a fool. So that seemed to capture um, the essence of this section of the, of the book. Um, so we'll um, take a look at both. Um, and so... When Venerable was leading a bit of a discussion on this, she covers situations where fear might make us engage in uh, behavior that's unwise. Um, So people gave examples where there's a fear of the unknown leading to being uncooperative with others. Um, So fear of what people will say to you, that you spend many, many, much time um, potentially on the cushion, just going through all the possibilities of how this person will react to you in a certain situation and then all planning out all your potential responses to them to try and uh, get your way or avoid um, conflict or, yeah. Um, And someone online gave the example of fear inhibiting them going to the doctor even though they know something's wrong because they don't actually want to have the confirmation that they have X and X disease or problem. But then that leads to more complications down the track. Um, And so Venerable gave us homework um, that to make examples on the cushion 
Although we waste time and energy ruminating, ruminating about certain things, um, and the example that she gave at the time was uh, ruminating about uh, not finding water when we were drilling for the well. We've gone down and down and down, and we still hadn't found water. Um, so did anyone uh, take this to the cushion, and or can everyone give some examples of how they allow fear, worry, and anxiety to, ruminate, to lead to rumination? Yeah? So during the retreat, of course when I was supposed to be focusing on Vajrasava purification, <laughs> um, the very irrational thought came up in my mind because I knew my mother was planning a trip to Colombia and all this fear and concern arose about her safety there and her safety coming back. Mm-hmm. And I spent sometime during the retreat just really worrying and worrying and ruminating and dreading and thinking of all the worst case scenarios and after the retreat I found out that she didn't even go (laughs) (laughs) it's a very 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 worthwhile time spent yeah 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 um, I think that it's a good example of how she said that this anxious ruminating isn't based on reasoning or logic. I mean, that way it leads us to um, waste precious time. Yeah. It's quite funny that this is the topic for tonight because as I was sitting here in the meditation before, I noticed this uh, pain in my gum and I kind of felt really quick and there's something sticking out of my gum, which I'm assuming is my wisdom teeth. And I have been putting this off for like a very long time because I'm very afraid of surgery and I don't really like going to the dentist. But it, uh, so I spent a lot of time ruminating about that, like years. And it's just dawned on me that I probably need to get that taken care of. Um, and it's totally unrational anxiety and fear about surgery and getting that taken care of. So, you know, negative effects of ruminating, painful. Uh, in a uh, teaching that Benoit gave, I think in, in 2008, she gave a short BBC series, I think after she came back from Mexico and there was a Manjushi retreat. And she did a series on f- the objects of fear. Um, and she uh, identified 10 objects of fear um, that we can get worked up about. One is fear about the world, fear of dying, fear of losing our identity, fear of making decisions, fear of the future. Fear regarding our health. Fear regarding the economy. Fear of losing things. Fear of separation from loved ones. And fear of being disliked. <laughs> it's quite a comprehensive list. Can you do that list? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> fear, fear about the world. I'll go through others oh, two that I'd like to explore a bit more. But the first is fear about the world. Fear of dying. Fear of losing our identity. Fear about making decisions. Fear of the future. Fear regarding our health. Fear regarding the economy. Fear of losing things. Fear of separation from loved ones. And the fear of being disliked. And one that stood out to me was... um, 
Fear About the World, um, where she made a point about how we can confuse compassion with despair, where we um, hear some news about the state of the world, um, and then we might think that we're generating compassion, but if we start to notice that we're getting tight, fearful, and miserable about the state of the world, it's a big warning sign that instead of um, generating compassion, we're actually falling into the near enemy of personal distress. Um, because compassion is a mind that is focused on uh, the suffering of others and wishes to alleviate that. But when we're getting tight, anxious, and miserable, we're very much focused on ourselves um, and our own suffering and wishing to alleviate that. In terms of we see the suffering of others, we have negative feelings arising, and then aversion arises in us in response to that. So, um, yeah, it was just interesting to see how... Uh, the element of self-preoccupation as an underlying cause or element of fear is very obvious in that aspect for me um, in terms of this fear about events in the world where we might be thinking we're engaging in virtue um, by examining a certain situation and, and thinking we're generating compassion where it's a self-centered thought has kind of grabbed hold of it and um, tainted it somewhat. Um, and the fear of decision-making stood out to me because um, of my personal uh, doubt, familiarity with doubt arising as an affliction for me. And so decision-making is often um, a source of anxiety in terms of what will I make the right decision, as if there is some uh, self-existent right decision out there that I'll be able to find somehow. Um, and uh, so Venerable went through uh, some criterion for decision-making that can help us alleviate um, this anxiety or fear or worry. Um, and, and made uh, the comment that there's never a wrong decision um, if we can learn something from the situation. Obviously, we want to examine the situation with as much wisdom as possible beforehand so that we make an informed decision. But if it later then doesn't turn out as expected or there's some unwanted consequences that there's it's still not necessarily a bad decision because we can learn something from that um, so the criteria for decision making could be again in touching into that very uh, broad uh, perspective of future lives and the broad goal of awakening that what's helpful for the next life for liberation and enlightenment and then within that We'll say, well, ethical conduct is important. So what decision is going to enable me to um, maintain and increase my ethical conduct? And what decision would be an obstacle to be keeping my ethical conduct or potentially lead me to breaking some precepts that I hold? And developing bodhicitta is important. So what decision can I make that will um, inspire my practice of bodhicitta to grow? And what would actually be a, a decision that would then block um, Bredichita to flourish in my mind? Um, yeah. I found that very helpful. Because um, again, that, the narrow focus on uh, the implications of, of a decision is very much this life. And kind of looking up and out, um, I don't often remember to do that. Um, did any, any other comments on the 
10 fears, are there particular ones that stand out for people? What year did you say that Venerable gave this? 2008. Right. So what's really changed in this country especially are mass shootings. Mm. And so I was reading recently that uh, now they're doing drills so often in schools mm. that the practices themselves of being safe are driving fear in children up like crazy. And so the constant question that many kids have across the country is, you know, if I go to school today, will I be killed? So, you know, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's something that is really... The, the, sound the, has the atmosphere. Shifted. Yeah. And then, am I safe when I go to practice my religion? I think that would be another one. It crosses my mind here. Yeah. Sometimes. One that just arose recently is fear of letting go. Mm-hmm. Can you explain? <laughs> I just was working on a project and I was so afraid to pass that on to mm-hmm. somebody else. Like I was like, <gasps> the anxiety was just like, yeah, it's it a lot of fear. I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've experienced that fear before, so it's not new mm-hmm. in some ways, but I thought that I had somehow left that behind and then just came back. <laughs> the one that really stood out for me is losing our identity. Mm. And I spent a lot of the retreat trying to let go of old identities and seeing how difficult that actually is. Um, even though I don't want these identities, I feel like I'll lose something very precious if I distance myself too much from them and uh, also you know the ordination coming up uh, is disorienting uh, at a certain level um, because some so much will change all my reference points will change and um, yeah I guess our identity is tied up with so much of what we do and you know, how we relate to other people, it's it's not, I, I haven't found it easy to isolate, really. It's And so much of what we want and what we think we need to survive and to thrive is tied up with these identities. So it's just, it's very pervasive, I found. Um, and I could see how terrifying it is if you don't have some positive role or new identity to head into and you... You just feel like you're losing yourself, basically. And, you know, the example of middle-aged men, older men, as they retire from their job, suddenly they feel like they're of no use to the world and they commit suicide. There's a high rate if there's not something positive for them to get into and if they're not socially connected. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an example of how vulnerable we are, um, if we feel like we're not really um, grounded in some kind of identity. That was when I read uh, Fear of Losing Identity, it brought to mind how the shift of um, ordaining and how that is a practice of having to let that aspect go. Um, And I'm not sure uh, what I was reading, but I've read of, of... 
some monastic saying that like there's been a death or even the, the friends and family around them feel that there has been a death because of the shift in identity. Um, I'm interested in um, perhaps some of the older monastics here of um, how, how did you find that um, ordaining and the change in identity and did fear arise in that process and how did you work with it? It's not a direct answer to your question, but I'm responding a little bit to Christina because I, I had a conversation today that reminded me of something that has come up over the years many times and that there's the, the surface level where you use your, lose your identity. But then we also come into the monastery doing the same shtick we've done our whole life, mm-hmm. how we get things done. This is how I work in the world. This is who I am in the world. This is what I believe about. And, then, and, and it's how we have learned to manage the world around us. Almost like a protection. Yeah, but it's, I mean, but you don't even recognize that because it's just how we get things done. It's just who I am and how I move in the world mm-hmm. and how I get my way. Yeah. So we come here and it doesn't work. No. And people don't respond the way they do out there. No. And we don't get the same kind of positive feedback for what are actually not necessarily very helpful ways of being in the world here. And I think it's, it's more subtle than just losing, I mean, losing identities that we can identify as one thing. Mm-hmm. But then there's this other subtle level of just our whole operating mechanism of how we were in the lay world yeah. that comes up again and again and again against the Dharma and against other people. And I think it takes a while to even recognize that this is what's happening and then it's like, well, if that doesn't work, what does? Yeah. Then Which what? is actually a very fruitful time. But um, we've all been through it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, moving on to uh, the type of um, wisdom fear that we might want to um, cultivate. Uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says that the difference between afflictive fear and wisdom fear is the presence or absence of exaggeration. And so when we see fear or anxiety or worry arising inside ourselves, we can ask and take the time to explore whether, do we have a a skewed or unbalanced view regarding what's going on? And to try and take uh, account into Am I seeing things realistically here? <coughs> and then as an antidote um, to working with fear, um, His Holiness emphasized um, reflecting on the kindness of others um, and as a, that as a way to bring things back into balance. Because um, there's so much good in the world that we often take for granted and that doesn't capture our attention. Um, whereas if we really... Take, take stock of the goodness in the world, um, then we get to see that the potential for goodness and that the potential that the horrible things that might be arising um, fear within us, that their potential to change them. So that kind of um, restores hope um, and, and can be a counter, counter agent to um, despair um, and bring us back to a more um, steady, even state of mind. Um, yeah, found that the, the it seems at various stages along the Lamrim or stages of the path teachings, the kindness of others can just be used as quite a powerful antidote to various 
things, um, growing appreciation for that. So can anyone give me some examples of fear where there isn't any exaggeration? Uh, the fear that arises knowing that I'm one breath away from the lower realms at any given second. Mm -hmm. Fear when driving the tractor. Because <laughs> if you go on a slope in the wrong direction, it could all be over. Yeah. <laughs> Medical chopper. I have fear related to the, sometimes the power of the afflictions. Mm. The overtaking my mind. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of these examples lead us into um, one other statement that caught my attention. I thought we could explore um, is that certain meditations in the stages of the path or the lamrim are specifically designed to arouse wisdom fear within us. Um, so I wanted to explore what they are um, and why these meditations do um, arouse this fear. Um, and so uh, there are three particular meditations um, that are designed this way. Um, and we've mentioned, um, actually we've covered all three of them, I think. Um, this, the disadvantages of cyclic existence, so afflictions that were under the control of afflictions and polluted karma, so they arise quite powerfully and can lead us to um, engage in behavior that brings long and short term, short and long term suffering. Meditation on death, um, and then the suffering of the lower realms. Uh, so can, uh, if we start with the disadvantages of cyclic existence, can we flesh out a bit more about why this might uh, be wisdom fear, that there's not? Um, Just as a sick person needs to know what they're suffering from in the same way we as beings in cyclic existence need to know what we're suffering from or else there's going to be no motivation to go to the doctor per se. Mm -hmm. um, basically, these the fears those are trying to arise is a, a concern rather than a panic. Yes. And so, to motivate us in the same way that M is talking about, where they, um, if you're sick, yeah, to motivate us not to waste our precious human life. Mm -hmm. And um, I can think of when before. Before moving here, I had been practicing and working, and I had a bit of a concern that if I didn't um, dedicate myself very sincerely to my practice, that it would fall by the wayside. That the allures of such existence would take you away? Yeah, and that... I felt like the more I practiced, the more I realized its importance. And I thought if I didn't practice much and I let myself skip practices because I'm tired from work, that I would start to um, be unconnected with it and not see the importance of it. Mm. Yeah. So the wisdom fear arising, a sense of, of immediacy to practice and utilize the opportunity you have. And what to prioritize. Yeah. Looking through the Lamrim Chenmo, um, Lama Songkhapa identifies that death, the meditation on death is quite powerful in terms of, um, it's one of it was one of the four messengers that motivated um, Shakyamuni Buddha to um, 
leave the palace um, and embark on your spiritual journey um, that is a potent motivate, motivator to practice. Um, and then in, one of, in the 2008 talks that Venerable Children gave um, about fear of death, she made a very interesting point um, that Dharma concern about death, um, that fear that we want to generate, is fear of having an ordinary fear of death. Um, that we're afraid, we, we try and cultivate this fear that we'll die um, with an ordinary mind that is fearful of losing our body possessions and family and friends at the time of death. So we're trying to replace what would be um, an ordinary fear at the time of death with a wisdom fear right now, so that then at the point of death, we have a mind that um, knows how to handle that situation and use it as an opportunity um, to continue creating virtue and progressing along the path. Um, yeah, it was a different way of framing it that kind of made the point uh, quite clear and also the, the, what to adopt quite clear and what to abandon quite clear. Um, and it brings it right forward into what we can do right now in terms of um, yeah, working on a sense of uh, determination to be free and seeing cyclic existence quite clearly for what it is. But um, in terms of doing these uh, meditations um, that can arise a wisdom fear, there is also the potential that we can fall into um, panicky fear. Um, and so in, in um, the meditation on death, we could fall into attachment and worldly grief. Um, Venerable mentioned um, that some people will meditate on death and then end up sobbing and crying because they're imagining their friends and family dying and then they're grieving that um, and, and feeling very attached and sorrowful, which that's not, not the point of the exercise um, to... Um, arouse those emotions and then dwell in them, it's more, um, we gain clarity that I will die, they will die, and this cycle of rebirth will continue unless I do something to stop it. Um, so to be aware going in of what exactly the end point that we're trying to get to, the, con the conclusion that we're trying to draw at the end of the meditation, not to um, kind of... Uh, go in with a lack of clarity um, that could end up exacerbating the attachment and clinging that we're trying to abandon. And does anyone here have experience of um, getting, doing any of these um, meditations of the suffering, the um, disadvantage of cyclic existence, the meditation on death, or the suffering of the lower realms, and finding themselves in a panicky fear. Um, has that happened for anyone doing going through these meditations? That you've kind of found yourself getting into fear, anxiety, or worry through doing these? I didn't necessarily, well, what I experienced was um, a... Complete aversion to the meditation of death. I couldn't do it for a long time, and um, even though I was aware of the benefits, 
I just couldn't bring myself to. And it took a while, several years actually, and then it became one of my favorite. So it just it was that transition to I had to pass through all the meditations, I think, to understand or contemplate some other topics before landing there. And I think that's what I chose to do. Um, I focused a lot on the uh, precious human life that that really I felt like that meditation strengthened my mind so that I then could do mm-hmm. uh, the meditation on death because yeah, for some reason I was not prepared to go there. Um, so that's that was my experience. This isn't so much my own experience, but something that I kind of think about, um, you know, when they do the four establishments of mindfulness, you contemplate um, your body decomposing and yeah. things like that. And... Um, and also feelings that are unpleasant and things mm-hmm. like that. And I notice in reading different people around that, that one thing that Thich Nhat Hanh does is he actually makes, it seems to me, the way I understand the way he presents this, is he makes sure that people know how to make their mind joyful before he has them go into those. Mm. And um, I can see some value in that, although I don't know if it, I just don't know what it would be like because I think the way Venerable Children wrote these outlines and the way she's always taught, I've always known that if a, any of these lamrams don't come out right, that I need to learn something or whatever. And I always found that interesting when I couldn't get my mind to go anywhere near what the conclusion was. I always learned about myself. But I don't think I remember ever panicking yeah. Having a panic fear, you know, about that. I, mine are more, my anxiety comes up more with daily life. <laughs> I was thinking about the disadvantages of cyclic existence meditations and, um, you know, the especially the six sufferings and the eight sufferings. Um, how I went through a long period of them making me angry. Mm. That I felt betrayed. It was like the more I came to understand the nature of cyclic existence itself, the angrier I got about, mm. you know, well, everybody is going to die and these relationships are not going to last and these things are not going to make me happy. And I was angry. But now in the context of this conversation, it might well have been covering a fear mm. underneath, the, underneath the anger of really recognizing that this is really how it is. And... Uh, not liking it. Yeah, coming from they are also now my, some of my favorite meditations too to keep my mind sober and on the path. But uh, yeah. there was a long time when I was just mad. Mm. So, I mean like attachment to these things and the anger, it kind of not turning out. Yeah, yeah. Not only attachment to things, but somehow the feeling of betrayal and the, the anger at the world in general was that well, my, maybe it wasn't my mother. I did everything right. And it's not going to turn out. Yeah. That's kind of disappointing news. <laughs> Don't want to hear that. Mm-hmm. But it's good to know. Yeah. 
is all else offers uh, a three-step process um, to avoid being overwhelmed by unrealistic fear. Um, going through these different meditations that can, um, uh, for any situation, but also in these meditations that can lead us to wisdom fear. Um, and it's a specific process to um, reaffirm our connections with the three jewels and to take refuge. Um, so that we remind ourselves that panic is not the desired outcome of this meditation. Um, and so yeah, going in knowing what the end conclusion is um, meant to be um, and being quite clear about that. Um, and then also recognizing that we can avoid the feared outcome. So confidence in the path that will lead us to awakening. Um, so this, obviously, with the um, length and depth of our practice, um, these, the ability to overcome this fear will deepen as we grow in our understanding of what really is the goal that we're working for and also seeing the fruits of our own um, practice manifesting for us, seeing that we're able to work with our mind more easily and that um, though that we relate to others and that is changing as a result of our um, efforts and practice. And the third point is to take refuge in the three jewels um, based on the knowledge that there is this goal that we're working for. We have some confidence in its existence and in our ability to achieve it. So, um, and I, um, in one of the uh, looking, there's actually quite a lot of material on fear on tuptonchildren.org, more than I was expecting. So as I was sifting through this, I did come across a, a, a talk by Vanna Buccini where you were describing how you were training yourself to take refuge in adrenaline situations mm. um, as, a, as a way of training yourself to um, be able to have the mind of refuge when you're dying, but also just in unexpected situations um, that come up so that... Um, yeah, I think there's one story that Venable tells about one of her friends in India slipping down the stairs unexpectedly, and the first thought in his mind was, oh, crap. <laughs> he said, I cannot, because he could have like hit his head and that could have been it. And that was not the mind that he wanted to have when this unexpected thing, and he could have died with that um, thought in his mind, and where is he going to go with that? Um, so I thought that was, uh, yeah, that practice of, taking refuge at those times when the afflictions um, want to take us in the complete opposite direction. Um, would, you be, would you be willing to um, speak a little bit about um, how that's gone for you over the years? Is that still something that you... It's not much in my mind right now. Hmm. I mean... Actually, what I've noticed, what, what I have been able to train myself to do is to go to the refuge formula. Even as I'm waking up, it, it happens many, many times a day. I've really put that in my mind. But what I've been questioning myself lately is, and so you got the words, mm. where's the rest of it? You know, sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. So, yeah, I think it's just more of a um, continued practice to pay attention because it's become a habit, which is good. Mm -hmm. But is it always a habit that's really deeply connected to actually taking refuge? That's the ne that's that needs some work. Yeah. Well, we want to f to anger. Um, I think explored that. Um, 
in this, uh, in terms of the aspect to abandon and to cultivate, um, there's not so much an element of anger to cultivate, but rather we're abandoning the, <laughs> the harmful, exaggerated project or projection of negative qualities onto an object, personal situation, and rather to cultivate a sense of compassion that's um, based on concern for the suffering of others. So this offering, it's the suffering of others that can be uh, either their own situation or how they act in response to their situation or suffering that can be a source of our own anger um, to transform the mind as into from responding with anger in response to them to having a mind of compassion. Um, first I wanted to take a bit of a temperature test of who here previously thought that anger was okay or was it something, or was something good to have? Um, <laughs> yeah, and not, not in terms of, I think... Um, we all have an element of feeling justified in our own anger in, in a certain sense, but I'm speaking more about the more general idea that anger in certain situations is beneficial. Um, you had... It's not society. It's that, yes, a society, a society has the view that anger is justifiable in certain situations. No. So it's a bit of a story because for the longest time I couldn't get angry. There were some situations in the past where I got angry and it had a very bad result. So I, because of that, I somehow froze the anger. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't, you know, I, w I, wouldn't, I wasn't able to experience that. So I went to therapy so I could get angry. <laughs> Did it work? <laughs> yeah, it worked. But after that, I found Buddhism and then I learned that I... <laughs> Didn't need to get angry. I shouldn't get angry. Waste of money. Waste of time. As a previous student athlete, part of my identity was having like this cocky chip on my shoulder, and a lot of that came out as just kind of like anger and arrogance, and especially you know anger towards like my competitors and the other team, and that was like a really big part of my identity as a student athlete, um, mm. which. I spent a lot of time, you know, working on that while I've been here and purifying that. But yeah, definitely a really big part of my student athlete identity. So obviously, having come sitting here, we've your perspective, I assume, has changed into not wishing to cultivate anger <laughs> or express it or have it as an emo. Um, and it comes one of the things that His uh, Holiness and Venerable Children have emphasized that. To work with anger, one of the first things we need to do is to recognize its disadvantages. And I think this is one of the um, topics that Venomonima uh, and Venomonima mentioned last week in terms of if we don't see the disadvantages of attachment, if we don't see how it leads us um, down a track that um, we don't want to go, then we're not going to be willing to work with it. Um, so can people identify some disadvantages of anger? You can just yell them out and I can repeat them if you want. Mind. Disturbs the mind. Harms others, harms ourselves. Destroys relationships. Trust. <laughs> Ruins your health. Breaks trust. Destroys relationships. It's miserable. Makes you cloud. Your brain cloudy. So that your mind clouded. So that you do things that you regret. Mm -hmm. Going to jail. Yeah, a lot of negative consequences. Going to jail. 
Palm people, spe- specifically those we care about often. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, even animals aren't attracted to people. Yeah. It changes people's personality, even. You know, accumulated over decades. And then all the kind of bitterness and the anger that builds up and builds up and builds up. Mm. Long term resentment and grudge holding. Yeah. And yeah, we train ourselves in the anger through repetition in this life and then future lives as well. Yeah. So we get this cycle of anger, negative behavior, anger, negative behavior, just kind of cycling through. Yeah, it's kind of anybody would have been angry at that. Of course yeah. you would be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just always our perception. One, one thing that, um, in terms of the idea of different mental factors, um, being part of our mind that when we have anger in our mind we can't have um, the opposing mental factors there at the same time so we don't have love, compassion um, or the aspirations of bodhicitta there so whenever I'm angry um, my mind is in complete contradiction to the spiritual goals that I'm trying to work towards Um, and if I can stop and and think about that that's quite... um, a showstopper in terms of trying to get me to turn my mind to see that when this is in my mind, um, I'm completely heading in the wrong direction. And if you have fear of dislike, being disliked? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's also a fear on that list, but if you have a fear of being disliked, mm-hmm. then it just feeds the um, causes for that situation to occur. Can you explain? Yeah, because... Even if people are trying to love us, when we're angry, who wants to come close? Mm. I mean, it's hard. Nobody wants to play with you. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. I had something come up in a session where I realized that um, how true it is what they're saying. And, and, And you can't actually fully control it, I realized, because the feeling component, when you're around someone who's angry, your own feeling component you can't control. Mm-hmm. You can control what happens after that, you know, if you're aware of it. But I, I was able to think about something and realize that how I felt in my body, if I, it would just pull my mind. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, it, I, I had to really, um, let's say this, consciously realize this feeling is so unpleasant. And if I just wasn't, and I usually wouldn't be aware of that, and it would just go right into the next thing. But knowing that I couldn't even control that, I was thinking, well, now this is what bodhisattvas do, mm-hmm. because they have to learn how to endure. They have to develop the fortitude to help sentient beings. Like in the 108 Verses of Great Compassion, there's a verse in there, it's like, you know, the fortitude to benefit others. And part of it would be, for me, would be just the feeling in my body and mind of unpleasantness that comes up when I'm around something that that I can't even control my reaction, that, yeah. that first part. Yeah. And to be so aware of that when I'm walking around and doing things is beyond me at this point. I think that's... Uh, part of the difficulty of not returning anger with anger 
in terms of someone's angry with you, negative feelings arise, and then perhaps like the aversion is so quick there to that negative feeling that arises that the anger comes right back and then wants to retaliate or get away or yeah one of the one of the antidotes to anger is just recognizing the disadvantages on its own but then on top of that there's a whole other array of um, antidotes um, that we can work with um, and I think Venables repeated this phrase a few times recently that um, it, it, I connect with it looking back on how um, I'm more of an imploder than an exploder in terms of my anger. And so um, it is this withdrawal um, mechanism. Uh, and, and even though here actually what it says is, is more of an exploder, but I connected it in terms of the tragedy of um, where our afflictions take us in terms of we think that it's going to protect us, but it's actually leading to our own misery. Um, and she was saying that when we're angry, often we're saying, I care about you, and I want to feel, but I don't feel close to you in this moment. I want to communicate, but I don't know how. So I'm going to scream and yell because I feel frustrated. Um, and just, and yeah, that captures so many times of when I've seen my anger arise, even when my I was more shut down, pull away. Um, that I was so much wanting to connect in that moment, but because of my anger and, and not knowing how to engage, um, I shot myself in the foot. Um, so yeah, I think that's seeing that very clearly, how um, these afflictions take hold and then uh, don't bring us the happiness we seek is quite a potent... Uh, way to store up my um, wish to not let myself go there or to drop it um, when it's there. Um, yeah. And another quote um, that I wanted to explore was uh, from Shanti Deva, where he says that the worst thing that others can do is kill us. But again, in the, taking that really big view of multiple lifetimes, as if we've died so many times, it's not really a big deal. Other, others kill us, so what? But they can't send us to the lower realms. We do that through our anger. And I read, I read that and I was like, how much do I really believe this? <laughs> or even if I intellectually understand it, how much uh, do I let it sink in? Um, and I bring in that big, expansive view that no matter what anyone does, um, they can't, they're not responsible for any suffering that I have and won't lead to these negative consequences that I'm fearing. Um, yeah, again, this, the appearances of this life being so strong and taking hold. Um, so that the Dharma antidotes or the Dharma perspective um, isn't really foremost in our minds. It's quite scary, really. Um, oh, another idea to look at would be um, this again is something that um, I find very helpful. If the idea that the Buddha's teachings provide us a way that by just by changing how we look at a situation, there'll be nothing at all to get angry at. Bringing in um, the element of emptiness or um, into the situation. Um, and that we can look at it in various ways and that there's not necessarily anything there. There's nothing negative there of its own side. Um, 
that requires an angry response. Um, so can we give an ex- can anyone give an example of how uh, they've just by changing the way they look at something, they've been able to dispel their anger. This is a story. I mean, I, for me personally, nonviolent communication has illustrated this more clearly than anything. Mm-hmm. In the, the initial practice of looking at the situation as though you're just observing through a video lens or something. Mm-hmm. And um, this happened years ago, but it's my keynote example of this with um, another resident who's no longer here, but she and I were arguing about something. But both of us went back and, and thought about what had happened. And what we could realize was, if we just looked at the situation from the point of view of that little lens, mm-hmm. she walked into the kitchen. She put something on the counter. Mm-hmm. She walked out. <laughs> That's all that happened. And both of us were furious. And both of us could, I mean, fortunately, I have that particular kind of relationship with that particular person that we could talk about it and just laugh at our own stupidity. But really, that's all that happened. Yeah. And yet. And, and yet, yeah. And so that's often really all that happens in situations. I find it really helpful to stop and do that. So that's not even getting into the... To the um, ultimate nature of, of the phenomenon is just look at what actually happened here. Yeah. I'm trying to get that balanced perspective again, yeah. clear perspective. Not just a balanced perspective, but actually pulling away all of the conceptual conceptualization mm-hmm. that instantly arises when something comes up. Mm-hmm. So it's more about, it, so, it, so it does tend towards um, um, analysis in that way, mm-hmm. and that we strip away the proliferated view of what happened and try to get down to the bare, 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 bare fact. And My mom sent me a birthday card and when I saw it, I was, you know, very happy and I was like, oh, you know, that's very kind of my mom to send me a birthday card and I opened the envelope and uh, the picture on the front was like this, I don't know, maybe four or five-year-old girl, like very feminine, like, like, and it was like, you know, happy birthday to, like, my favorite daughter, and it was just, like, hyper-feminine, and, like, my, like, how I used to, like, identify, like, gender-wise is, like, a little bit gray, and so my mom would have, it, it, it was a button, it pushed a button, mm-hmm. and, um, and then I didn't even open the card for the first, you know, few hours, because I was, like, ah, I was very upset, <laughs> and, and then, you know, eventually I opened the card, and then it had this, like, very nice, like, hallmarky kind of message in it, and it was very sweet, and, you know, she had a bunch of, like, my old co-worker sign. It was very cute. But, and then I was, <laughs> it was so silly. I mean, I was reflecting on this, and there's really nothing to be upset about. You know, I mean, whether you want to go into, like, emptiness and, like, really gender just a construct in a, on a worldly level, but then also it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really exist at all. And this whole thing was just kind of very fun to look at. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a bit painful, but yeah, I really thought that was such an interesting day. <laughs> Painful to recognize like the own, own reactivity that was so quick. Yeah, it response. was like instantaneous. I like, just like threw the card down. <laughs> or yeah. this picture on the front that isn't even like a real thing. It's just a picture. Yeah. And some words that I had put all this meaning onto. Yeah. I think you've been watching touch on an important point of like the 
the assumptions that are so quick to come in in response to a situation and how that then leads to a whole proliferation where it suddenly becomes this big story and that's why we're getting angry when really the bare facts are just X, Y, Z and... That sticks with me as something that Venerable Jigme said to me some years ago. I don't know what I was saying to her, but she said, you don't know that. And this is when something I know she says to herself, like, you know, the mind's proliferating something and, you know, we're assuming someone's motivation or whatever it is. It was something like that. And that phrase really sticks with my mind. I'm like, you don't know that, you know, because <laughs> it's like the back to the observation, like, you don't know what's going on. You just have a thought about it. You know, yeah. so it's back to don't believe everything you think. But yeah. that, that line really sticks with me. You don't know that. I, I, it comes up sometimes when, you know, it's helpful. Yeah. Because it's, it's actually, of co- how, you know, it's just a reality check for me. Yeah. Yeah. The example recently that, oh, the bananas are on the table. That means X and X must, uh, so-and-so must have been here because that's what they do. It's like, we don't know that. Yeah. And this is the power also of our Thursday night teachings where we're learning about the different types of awarenesses and to really ask yourself, it's like, how do I know what I'm thinking here? Yeah. That last comment of you don't know that, um, my mom actually meant to the card while she was here and she's like, you know, I didn't mean that picture, right? I just meant the words on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> she said it so casually, too, and I was like, you have no idea what I went through. <laughs> like, Thanks, Mom. One thing I don't see mentioned in this um, section under anger in the book here is that anger is often a secondary emotion. Mm-hmm. It's a response to being afraid, or it's a response to feeling powerless, or it's... It's usually hiding something else. And oftentimes, when we're angry, we need to look. We need to look at that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's to it could be defensive because somebody's. You know, we might have fear of of our losing our identity or yeah. or just um, frustration with somebody. Like you're, you're talking about with the card. You know, <laughs> so I pick pull pick it apart a little bit more to see what's underlying it to get a better yeah. hold of. And when you stop and look at something like that, like. That um, it puts the anger, it cools it down some. Yeah. Just stopping and stepping back. Yeah. I can think also of uh, dealing with anger through um, being upset with somebody who was yelling at me, mm-hmm. and just saying, "Oh, this person is um, is is suffering right now. That's why they're upset." And um, I could respond in kind, or you know, and do the yell back. Or it could be kind, and and I found that if you're if you just calm and be gentle, you often get that person to respond in kind to what you're bringing to the table instead. I mean, if they don't, then at least you're in a more open state of mind to then receive or just to remain um, to receive what they have to say. If you're not in a inflamed mind yourself. I heard a story from the Taiwanese nuns. I'm not sure where who told me this, but um, somebody was talking about watching another student just 
be yelled at by the teacher. And just being calmly, calmly receiving it, you know? Mm. And it's like if someone's yelling at you, what is there to be angry about? That's them. You can't change what, you know, you can't change what somebody else thinks or says, their opinion. You can influence it, but you're not going to influence it by getting angry back. Mm. Yeah, I think that, that also emphasizes the need to be very clear about the disadvantages of anger, seeing that if, you, if I respond with anger, it doesn't get me where I want to go. Seeing very clearly to making many examples from my own life of when I have responded with anger, what have been the results? Mm-hmm. doesn't help. No, it doesn't. And we, um, we justify anger in this society. And so it's like, oh, they put that on the counter, so I got angry. Or they yelled at me, so I got angry. You could say none of it's justified. and There's no reason to be angry with any of it. Sometimes fighters in ring in the rink, like martial arts or boxers, they're purposely trying to piss their opponent off because yeah. then their opponent's not clear. Yeah, exactly. And they can dominate. Yeah. Christina? Well, Venerable Losong's comment reminded me that under anger, there's always attachment. Yeah. So attachment is kind of like, the, other than ignorance, it's the primary thing I think we should be looking at, and we often forget that ang- uh, that attachment is so dangerous because it leads to anger and jealousy mm-hmm. and all these other negative emotions. So, yeah. yeah, I think it's every time we get angry to say, well, what am I attached to in this situation, and what can I do to reduce that attachment? Because yeah. as long as I have it, the anger is going to arise. I can't just you know, keep applying an antidote to anger. That's not going to get at the root of the situation. Yeah. And, um, you know, if somebody's yelling at you, it's our attachment to reputation or, or praise. And then you have to ask yourself, why am I attached to other people's opinion of me? Why do I not have confidence in myself, mm-hmm. faith that I'm a good person? Why, why am I always relying on the world to reaffirm who I am? Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what the answer that, to that question is, but <laughs> trying to find out. Yeah. I think though that with um, if anger is such a is a very strong habit or is quite immediate that before we can work on the attachment that underlies it, then to get some handle on the on the anger that flares um, is is a necessary first step to um, or at least in the thick of things. Um, I know I need to work with the exaggeration that's going on in my mind before I can start to dig deeper at the attachment that's underlying it to kind of dispel that exaggeration or the projection of qualities that aren't there. Um, it's like I'm looking at both. When, when I'm more clear, clear-minded without the fog of anger, then I can kind of look at the attachment that's underlying it. I find, especially in a chronic kind of situation, either with an ongoing thing with some person Mm -hmm. or a situation that is pressing my button again and again and again, Mm -hmm. it's really valuable to look at what am I attached to here. Yeah. Yeah, that, those kinds of situations, I think that that antidote is actually the most effective. Yeah. When you've got, and when you're in a clear space of mind to look at that. And I think fear also has attachment as a, a base. 
what are we we're afraid that something is going to happen to something we're attached to our identity our health mm-hmm. our life and yeah oftentimes that's by seeing what we're attached to then we can see whether or not it's realistic yeah we can get more clear on the exaggeration aspect that's going yeah. on. And with the fear or the anger, just stopping and saying, what attachment is this based to, brings that space of stopping. And that's very important to stop and, oh, examine the situation. It just brings you out of your reactivity. Mm-hmm. Looking... Uh at the various antidotes, I went to um, chapter six of Shantideva to look, um, and a few um, stanzas stood out that I thought to share. Um, and it's kind of what some of the aspects that we've covered already in terms of uh, generating compassion for those on, who are under the control of afflictions and karma. So, like the person who's angry or doing things that our anger is responding to, seeing, um, generating compassion for them in place of our anger. So he says, without thinking, I shall be angry. People become angry with no resistance. And without thinking, I shall produce myself. Likewise, anger itself is produced. So when seeing an enemy or even a friend committing an improper action, by thinking that such things arise from conditions, I shall remain in a happy frame of mind. If things were brought into, into being by choice, then since no one wishes to suffer, suffering would not occur to any embodied creature. I find that helpful. It's like no one is wishing to be angry and experience the suffering that comes with that. Like no one's happy when they're angry. Um, so reframing it that way. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't uh, have this under my belt yet, but it was an, uh, one of the antidotes I thought would um, help me turn my mind when anger arises. Um, and the other one was identifying um, the harm that our ego grasping um, brings about um, in how it solidifies situations um, from then where anger arises in response to it. And this kind of relates to what you were saying about, um, well, he says, since my mind is not physical, in no way can anyone destroy it. But through it being greatly attached to my body, it is caused harm by physical suffering. Since disrespect, harsh speech, and unpleasant words do not cause any harm to my body, why mind do you become so angry? Because others will dislike me. But since it will not, it will not devour me either in this life or the next, why do I not want this dislike? So seeing that... As Venerable Lhasang said, that no matter what words people say to us or if they don't like us, it doesn't doesn't destroy us in any way. Um, And the harm, the perceived harm there isn't necessarily as um, tangible as we think. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Bachelors. Moving on perhaps to disillusionment in terms of time. Um... I found this one actually quite interesting uh, because I hadn't really um, connected with the term disillusionment before um, or seen it um, much throughout the teachings. Um, in, terms of, in terms of the one to be abandoned and the one to be adopted, um, 
the uh, one to be abandoned would be discomfort due to having dashed expectations, um, potentially leading to despondency, depression, or cynicism. <laughs> and the disillusion to be adopted is disillusionment with a cyclic existence, leading to the aspiration for liberation. Um, and this despondency um, with cyclic existence or this disillusionment can lead to peacefulness and, it conduce, and is conducive to cultivating compassion. Um, so how this links into renunciation or the determination to be free, um, I found interesting. It's like an, a, a precursor to those in terms of if, if we're not disillusioned with cyclic existence, then there's going to be no motivation to want to be free. Um, and that's exactly what Aridava says in his 400 stances with, how can one who is not disenchanted with the world appreciate peace? Cyclic existence like a home is difficult to leave behind. So if we don't recognize that we're in a prison, we're going to make no effort to get out. Um, uh, and I like, I like the flavor that disillusionment gives because... With renunciation, which I don't think Venerable Children uses too frequently, she more uses like determination to be free, um, because renunciation has this idea of renunciation has this idea of um, giving something up, um, whereas disillusionment is just recognizing that what we well, <laughs> the disillusionment is just recognizing that what we thought was so alluring that possessed. Uh, potential for happiness doesn't actually exist that way. So we're not losing anything. We're not giving anything up. We're actually gaining something through becoming disillusioned. We're gaining wisdom um, and we're gaining then the potential to not engage in these behaviors that we might otherwise be um, motivated to engage in. Um, yeah. Uh, so like with fear, certain Lamrim meditations are intended to bring about disillusionment. Um, so what are they? Well, yeah, what are the Lamrim meditations that are designed... The defects of cyclic existence, yes. Six kinds of suffering. The six kinds of suffering, yes. Can you... Yes. Yes, okay. So, the eight types of sufferings cannot be posited. <laughs> So they can be posited. Posit them. <laughs> but the, the subject, the eight sufferings of human beings, yes. are birth, aging, sickness, death. Mm -hmm. um, meeting with what we don't like, mm -hmm. being separated from what we do like, mm -hmm. and seeking or, or gaining what we like, but then being unhappy or dissatisfied with what we find. Mm -hmm. Is that eight? Mm, one more. That was seven? Yes. Birth, aging, 16, so did it. Oh. Oh, and of course having the um, aggregates the, yes. the, under the, the control of um, karma and afflictions. Yeah. Good. Um, okay. And the, so the six, uh, the six faults of cyclic existence cannot be posited. Why? Well, so far as that they can be posited. They can be positive. Posit them. Um, the fault of um, uncertainty. Mm -hmm. The fault of instability. Unsatisfactoriness. The fault of death. 
Yes. The fault of taking rebirth again and again. Mm-hmm. The fault of falling from uh, high status to low status. And, mm-hmm. and the fault of, it's called the fault of no companions, the fault of going on to your next life without going on alone. Yeah. We alone experience our own death and the results of our own karma. Yeah. Hmm. So three types of dukkha cannot be posited. So they can be posited. Posit them. The subject, the suffering of change, mm-hmm. which is related to what we call pleasant feelings or mm-hmm. happy feelings. The uh, suffering of suffering, which mm-hmm. we know as... Uh, unpleasant feelings or mm-hmm. unhappiness and the pervasive condition to suffering which includes neutral feelings and uh, it relates to the fact that by the very nature the aggregates are unsatisfactory and lead to suffering very good yeah useful lists to know um, and looking at this, uh, I found it interesting that um, uh, Lama Kappa said that the first and the eighth type of um, suffering specific to human beings are the most important. So the suffering of birth um, and then the suffering of um, having, specifically within that, of having taking rebirth with contaminated aggregates um, as, is the most crucial to contemplate and to repeatedly investigate and meditate upon. Um, and so the, each of these uh, eight um, sufferings or dukkha of specific to human beings can be broken down into five. Um, so there's 40 points um, for an overall contemplation. Um, so I thought just to quickly go through what the five are for um, birth and taking rebirth with the contaminated aggregates. Um, so for birth... Um, the five points. Um, the first point is that birth, the birth process is suffering. Um, just going through the process of um, taking birth um, is not a pleasant experience. So in our culture, it can often be romanticized, and um, but it's not so. And I, if we have time, I'll potentially do a bit of a reflection on that very quickly. Um, and then the second point in that five is that the place of birth, the aggregates, is suffering. And it's associated with um, dysfunctional tendencies um, and that we experience a lack of workability and control. We're born from delusions. Um, the aggregates are the place where delusions are generated again and abide and increase. So we're born with these karmic latencies where we're set to... Um, generate ignorance, anger, and attachment, and then experience the suffering that comes from them. Um, And that it's with these latencies in our mind, um, which push us to creating non-virtue, then it's difficult for us to create virtue. So we can get stuck in this cycle where we're heading um, down creating the causes for suffering and not creating the causes for our own happiness. Um, And the third point, Um, is that birth is the source of the generation of suffering and that it's the platform for sickness, aging, and death. 
And I think this is one of the reasons why Lama Tsongkhapa emphasizes <clears throat> birth, because it kind of encapsulates a lot of the others, that if we take birth, then these necessarily follow. We have sickness, we have aging, and we have death. And if we don't age in terms of, um, well, moment by moment we're aging, but if we don't get to the sufferings of older age, then we've necessarily died before that usually. So um, the fourth point is a birth is a source for the afflictions to arise. Um, this kind of seems to be tied into the second point. I'm not, um, yeah, I think the emphasis here is that uh, afflictions arise when we meet with particular sense objects. As Venerable emphasized that when we meet with sense objects, afflictions usually arise in relation to them. Um, we, have, we take birth, we have a body, we engage with our environment. Afflictions come quite easily. Um, and then the fifth point is separation is the nature of birth. We're born, we die. Um, so I think these, these five points uh, aren't necessarily separate. They're just they're different flavors kind of on, on the same, on a similar points, but they kind of look at it a little bit slightly differently to help us deepen um, our understanding of the subject. Um, I might actually skip the five points of the contaminated aggregates um, and go to just reading an excerpt from The Descent into the Womb Sutra. Um, because I was reading this, and, I, and my initial reaction is, oh, oh, no, I can't read that out. Yeah, that won't go down too well. And that seems a very good reason to actually read it. <laughs> because this is, this is the whole point of that um, it's unpleasant, and it's not, um, it's not how we culturally present these things. This is not how we instinctively relate to these things, and this is why we get into trouble because we don't see the nature of samsara clearly, then we carry on quite happily plodding along and not, not motivated to um, be free. Um, so if you'd like, you can get into a bit more of a meditative position, and I'll just read this slowly um, <laughs> and see what arises for you. Um, so yeah, this is from the Descend into the Womb Sutra. So filthy with quantities of urine, brain-like substances, thick saliva and marrow. The fetus dwells above the intestines and below the stomach, in a space which is filled with many kinds of filth, and is home to a myriad of bacteria, with two very foul-smelling openings and hollows and apertures in the bone. Its front faces the vertebrae and its back the stomach wall. It is nourished every month by its mother's uterine blood. The bits of food its mother has eaten are ground by her two rows of teeth and are swallowed. As it is swallowed, the food is moistened from below by saliva and the oozing of mouth sores, while it is polluted from above by thick saliva. The remains of that vomit-like food enter from above through the umbilical cords opening and generate growth. Through the thickening, quivering, elongated, and globular stages, the embryo is completely transformed into a fetus with arms and legs. The placenta encloses its arms, legs, and cheeks. Reeking like an old rag used from mucus, the stench is unbearable. 
Enshrouded in pitch darkness, it moves up and down. The bitter, sour, pungent, salty, spicy, and astringent taste of food affect it like hot coals. Like an intestinal worm, it feeds on filthy liquid, filthy fluids. It finds itself in a swamp that oozes rotting filth. Its life force is life force is unstable. The heat of its mother's body torments, heats, and overheats it all in three degrees. Slightly, moderately, and greatly. It experiences distressing, intense, violent, and unbearable agony. Whenever its mother moves a little, moderately or greatly, it also moves in the same way, constrained by five bonds. It experiences agony that is distressing, intense, violent, unbearable, and almost inconceivable as though it had been thrust into a pit of burning cinders. Thus, when all its major and minor limbs have developed, the fetus stirs in a frightful, pitch-dark place of urine that oozes rot with an unbearable stench, is contaminated by excrement and urine, and continuously dripping with foul-smelling filth, blood, and putrid fluids. Energy arising from the maturation of previous karma makes its feet turn up and its head turned down towards the opening. With arms drawn in, it is slightly, moderately, and utterly smashed between two machines of bone. The distressing, intense, violent, and unbearable agonies cause all the limbs of the body painful as fresh wounds to turn blue. All of the body's organs become hot. Since the uterine slime is now much reduced, the surface of the body dries out, and so the lips, throat, and heart become parched. Confined and full of insufferable dread, it emerges, however difficult this may be, when drawn out by the influence of causes and conditions by energies arising from the maturation of previous karma. Once outside, the air burns like caustic liquid on a wound. The mere touch of a hand or a cloth feels like the cut of a sword. It experiences distressing, intense, violent, and unbearable agony. This is not the usual picture of birth that at least I have was given when I was growing up. <laughs> but it uh, sobers the mind. It helps with disillusionment, with um, raises the question, do I want to go through that again? And if I don't, then am I creating the causes to not go through it again? And then what are those causes to not go through that again? It's quite powerful. Um, so to close, um, I just want to, uh, there's a, uh, a quote from um, Chandigroman's letter to a student that kind of mentions uh, the advantages of making the mind sober. Because if, if we're going to want to cultivate disillusionment, then there's, which makes the mind sober, then there's the question of, well, why do I want to? Um, and so this quote um, from the, which you'll find in the Lamrim Chenmo, or um, this, the Masangkapa stages of the path, um, he says, the more you conceive all beings as happy, 
the more dense the darkness of your delusion becomes. The more you conceive all beings as suffering, the more the darkness of your delusion lessens. The more you contemplate what is pleasant, the more the flames of attachment spread. The more you contemplate what is unpleasant, the more the flames of attachment abate. And kind of on this level, um, in when Venerable was giving her commentary to um, approaching the Buddhist path, she asked us, like, what can we really count on samsara delivering us? What can we count on any sentient being delivering us when these sentient beings are under the control of ignorance, attachment, and anger? I'm in polluted karma. So if we're wanting bliss and happiness, are we relying on the right things to get us there? And this is where this cultivation of disillusionment comes in so that we can... Um, Abandon seeking happiness um, in the wrong places. Any last comments or Christina? The meditation that you just led, it always really gets a rise out of me. I feel like it's exaggerated. Mm. The fetus can't smell anything. And I also find it misogynistic. I don't know if anybody else has that impression, but yeah, I just feel like it, it goes too far. It doesn't sober my mind. It, mm-hmm. I feel like it really exaggerates the situation. And not all babies are crying when they emerge from the womb. So, you know, is it really experiencing that much pain? Mm-hmm. the room (laughs) I'd say smelling a placenta is not a very pleasant thing because I've smelled it Uh and in terms of although I do get some of what Christina is talking about and remember my own experience of giving birth you know um, I can see and relate to uh, Adriana's suffering when she was going through that uh, because there were complications prior to the birth. Mm-hmm. And I knew because of those complications, it was measured that she was very distressed. And then even during the process of birth, she experienced even more distress. Again, I knew because I was measured. And I knew what was going on with her. And there were hours where she was uh, still in the in the womb in a situation where uh, it was not good for her. Mm-hmm. And so even though I was not very conscious of the the stress and the suffering that she was going through in thinking back about that, you know, I, I used to complain. I mean, it was 36 hours for me <laughs> of labor. But knowing what she went through, I, it was probably a lot worse for her, the yeah. 36 hours. And so that's kind of how I've brought that into, because I've read this one before, yeah. and I brought it into my experience. And at least, um, yeah, I've been able to you know, equate some of what it describes to the experience, you know, that I went through. Yeah, that's kind of the level that I connect with it as well. If, if it's so painful and for the mother um, with the contractions and, and the physical aspect, then 
the being that's being <laughs> exited through that process, um, I mean, like with the, the skull, um, it, the, 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 there's, it is completely squished. Like there's the reason why there's a little spot on the child's head where you don't touch because there's no bone there so to allow for the um, bones to contract and expand. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I can't remember the experience of my birth, so I can't personally say that I know that it was a painful experience, but I also know that um, my mother had a long, complicated birth um, where they uh, tried forceps, they tried various things, and, and then eventually I was a C-section baby because of the different complications. And, um, yeah. And I think... Uh, as well, they, one of the reasons they attribute that um, we can't remember our past lives, one aspect is that is that the birth process is so traumatic that um, it uh, obscures the mind from being able to remember what came before. Um, yeah, I don't remember exactly where I got that from, but it was in one of the teachings I've received. Yes, she also says that in his commentary to the Amram Chenma. Yeah. Remember something? Also, you know, these teachings, uh, this comes from yoga direct perceivers, people mm. who have had these realizations. And it's the teaching of the Buddha. So if you look into Geshe Sopa's Steps on the Path to Awakening, Enlightenment, whatever it is, it's even more in-depth <sighs> as to what we experience in the birth process. It's right. really, you have to be up for it. It's extensive. Yeah. I mean, the, the um, women in, in our world, women give birth. So it's necessarily given from the point of view of things happening in a, in a woman's body. Um, and some of the other texts that, that focuses on the foulness of the body focus on women um, and can be misogynistic in, in terms of the sense of it, the audience was for um monks largely in that text was taking that perspective but here it just seems for, for me at least that for just looking at the context of the woman because that's who gives birth em? really quick and kind of a strange comment when i was first looking at this paragraph i thought a seahorse because uh, the men the male mm. seahorse carry the baby seahorse and I was trying to see how that would apply. Because I had kind of the same reaction that I was like, uh, this is, you know, misogynistic. And I was like, well, no, seahorse males carry the baby. So I don't know. That's how I kind of looked at that. A little bit out there. But <laughs> Thank you all for your participation. Thank you. Okay.